You are listening to audio from Riverside Church. If you would like to check out more resources, please visit riverside.church. Gracious God, we thank you for your goodness. And that beautiful image that we've already received this morning of that image of that goodness running after us. pursuing us, that we might be transformed and consumed by your goodness, Lord. We thank you for this beautiful space together today, these precious moments to gather as sisters and brothers in Christ, to pray, to worship, to sing, to adore you, Lord and to be shaped by your word. So may these words of my mouth and the meditations and the thoughts of every one of our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, good morning, everybody. I'm Andrew. Um, So the Midwestern goodbye. Three weeks in a row. So we have this long... This long section that immediately follows the slap of the legs and the declaration of, well, I suppose, where you get into some really important conversations, sometimes getting right to the heart of the conversation that you've been talking indirectly about throughout the entire evening. This is the first stage in a Midwestern goodbye. And then there's the final stage in the Midwestern goodbye, where you're slipping your shoes on, your hand hand is on the doorknob, giving a few updates on the extended family, and oh, I forgot to tell you about Jack and Cindy's new neighbors. But then you finally actually do leave the house and go walking down the sidewalk. It's finally over. That's how I framed the last couple sections of Colossians. Almost as postlude, yet still extremely important. So why am I bringing up the Midwestern goodbye again? Is it just because I'm so hopelessly Midwestern that I can't give up the gag? Possibly. It's true. But it's not why. It's not the only reason why I bring it up, okay? Um, Sometimes you realize you left something behind. And then you go back to the door and you knock again. And you say, I'm sorry, I forgot to grab my coat. Or Billy left his shirt upstairs. To which you say, his shirt? What is he wearing then? Never mind. Let's go check. Um, Anyway, so you left and then you came back. So is it the same visit or is it a different visit? That's the question before us today. And I say that Colossians and Philemon are so tied together that we really are in a situation of, is this like the same visit extended or is this a different visit altogether? They are so overlapping. Their themes connect. The characters connect. So we're overlapping them and diving deep into Philemon today uh, because it shows what it looks like to live out the Christian life, to live out the unimaginably good news of Jesus described in Colossians in a first century household. What it looks like for one particular household to live this out. And actually, it's a house church. So that's what Philemon is. It's this short letter that tells one story of what the early church's Christian theology looks like on the ground level, among people with real lives and real relationships. So, Philemon. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. To Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, also to Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. 
grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So this letter is written by Paul with Timothy, just like Colossians was. But Philemon is a new character. We didn't meet Philemon in Colossians. He wasn't mentioned by name. Those several other names in this letter are Archippus, Onesimus, Mark, Luke, Demas, Aristarchus. You may have heard Sarah read all those names, and you also heard Mary Beth read those names last week because, again, a lot of the same characters. But Philemon is a new name. The sister Aphia is a new name. And we find out here, new information, that Philemon also hosts a church in his home, that there is a church that meets in his home. And verse 19 implies quite strongly that Paul himself brought Philemon to faith in Jesus. There's a storied relationship between Paul and Philemon. They are by no means strangers. So after the greeting, which is what we've read so far, Paul offers this beautiful prayer of encouragement to the group, Philemon, Aphia, Archippus, and the church. So verse 4. It's a prayer that sounds similar to a lot of Paul's prayers, but it's a, it's a beautiful one, and it's for this, for this situation here. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers, because I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. So last Sunday, I spent most of the sermon extolling the virtue of partnership in the gospel. We talked a lot about all the ways we partner in the gospel across ministries, across space, across time, across vocation. And it's clear that Paul sees Philemon and his church, the church that meets in his home, as a true partner in the ministry of the gospel. He hears good things about their faith. He prays for their faith and their understanding to become even deeper. And like any decent leader, Paul is overjoyed and encouraged to see good work happening among those folks who he loves and is clearly invested in. There's no hint of competition, only sharing and loving and that for the sake of Christ. And then he offers a personal encouragement to Philemon specifically for Refreshing the hearts of the Lord's people. A cynical person might say that Paul is buttering up Philemon for the appeal that he's about to make, because as you heard Sarah read, there is an appeal coming. But there's no need to see it cynically, right? Paul is simply following an affirmation with a request, which comes in verse 8, though the actual direct request doesn't come until verse 17, which is, welcome him as you would welcome me. There's other requests in there, but that's the core. But Paul first contextualizes the request in the context of love and their personal, even familial relationships with each other. So we start with the first few verses of the request. So verse 8, we'll walk through this verse by verse. Therefore, although in Christ, I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do. We're just going to pause there. In Christ, I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do. This is sort of a casual reference to Paul's apostolic authority and probably also his authority that he has over Philemon as the person who led him to Jesus himself, that he has this authority as a spiritual father who brought him into the Lord's family. Um, look ahead to verse 19. He, he says this later in the letter, you owe me your very self. Whoa, I mean, that's, 
Paul's, Paul's not pulling stops here. But there's also this social church pressure applied too because this is a really deeply personal letter, right? We're kind of eavesdropping on a pretty personal conversation. But it's also a public letter because it's not just sent to Philemon. It's not like, hey, to Philemon. It's to Philemon and Aphia and the church that meets in your home. Oh, and Aristarchus, I forgot about him, right? The whole church. So it must be a really big deal to Paul that he deals with this matter, which appears to be a matter with only Philemon, but he deals with it before the whole church. Because it's not just for Philemon. This is a matter that greatly impacts the whole church and how the church becomes and lives together, as we will see. Okay, verse 9. So I I could be bold and, and make you do this, but yet, I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is as none other than Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner, also a prisoner in Christ, of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. So Paul goes out of his way to not appeal to his authority, but simple Christian love. He even calls himself an old man, right? A very humble and human image of the great Apostle Paul. I'm, I'm an old man, is what he says. And here we get to the crux of the matter, which is Onesimus. This is all about Onesimus. Paul's appeal is for Onesimus, who is his son. He calls him his son. Again, most assuredly, meaning that he brought Onesimus into the family of faith. He led him to Jesus. But there's another good reason for Paul to refer to him as his son, and that is to introduce a little bit of a disruption in Philemon's household. In Philemon's household, Onesimus is a slave. I'm not sure if you picked that up already, but that that is pretty clear from this letter, that in Philemon's household, Onesimus is a slave. But Paul calls him my son. Paul has already instructed earlier in the letter, sorry, not earlier in the letter, in Colossians, he's instructed slave owners to provide what is right and fair to their slaves in Colossians 4.1. But when one of your slaves is called son by no less than the apostle Paul, excuse me, sorry, the old man in chains, Paul, that Paul, that, that summons to provide what is just and fair, it like levels up. It becomes even more serious, right? This is serious business. And then he goes on, verse 11, formerly he was useless to you, But now he has become useful to both you and to me. And I am sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. Okay, Onesimus was useless to Philemon. That reference that Paul says about sending him back in verse 12, right? I'm sending him, who is my heart, back to you. Leads most scholars to believe that Onesimus was a runaway slave. There very well could have been notices hung in public places describing Onesimus and asking for anyone who sees him to contact the officials and receive a reward. That would have been common back in the day. We don't know it to necessarily be true in this situation. Philemon was a Christian, may have behaved differently. But Onesimus, Onesimus was a very common slave name, in large part because of the meaning of the word Onesimus, which is useful. That's right. The name Onesimus means useful. 
So when Paul says, formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful, he literally says he has become Onesimus. Onesimus has become Onesimus to you. So in his former ways, clearly Onesimus did not live up to his name. But now that he has become Paul's son, part of the family of believers, he is useful. And Paul sends him back to Philemon. He doesn't hold him back. He doesn't say, well, he's my son now and you can't have him. He is my son, but he sends him back. Because Paul has a teaching for the whole community. And Philemon and Onesimus and their relationship is right at the heart of this important teaching. Okay, so verse 13. I would have liked to have kept him with me so he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent so that any favor you do would not seem forced but would be voluntary. Paul does something here that perhaps we can all recognize. He lays out his own preference, right? But then says, but, but it's still your choice, right? Anybody ever done that? No, sure, no, none of us has ever done that, right? We lay out a couple options, say this is my preferred choice, but it, it's really up to you, right? We tip our hand, and depending on who we're talking to, they may choose the option that we prefer in order to not, you know, not disrupt and keep the peace. Or, if we're talking to a different kind of person, they jump at every opportunity to do anything that we disapprove of. Not that I'm talking about anybody's kids or anything like that. But... <laughs> Paul has already made clear that he could be bold and order Philemon to do things. But he truly wants him to both do the right thing and be motivated by love. He doesn't want one without the other. So Paul has seen Onesimus, in Onesimus a proclivity for gospel ministry. Obviously, he sees some potential in him to do the work that he is doing. He knows also that he is a servant in the house of Philemon. So it seems that he clearly desires that he'd be released from Philemon's home for service alongside Paul in the work of spreading the unimaginably good news of Jesus into more communities and more people. Let's keep going. Verse 15. Perhaps the reason he was separated for you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So Paul offers a possible explanation of the situation, an explanation of some of the good that has come, this sort of like, this, maybe this was God's purpose in bringing us together. That you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. And it's very tempting, I know it's very tempting for me, to read this with my 21st century eyes, because those are the eyes that I actually have, right? I mean, they, they were born in the 20th century, but if you, if you can believe it. Um, <laughs> um, but it's easy to believe that this was a call for Philemon to 
legally free Onesimus from the bonds of slavery. That's possible. It's possible, but it's kind of unlikely. The picture that Paul paints, though, I, I don't want us to miss it because of that. Because what he does paint here is unbelievably compelling, I think. So, uh, I just want to offer a quote from uh, New Testament scholar Scott McKnight. He unpacks this pretty beautifully. He says, In the household of Philemon, that status, slave, was no longer determinative. He had become family in the kingdom. Therefore, in the house of his master, he was family and therefore no longer a slave deprived of status and power. What Paul wants is for Philemon to welcome Onesimus back in the church as a brother and to establish in the house church of Philemon a kingdom reality not seen in the Roman Empire. He wants Philemon to welcome Onesimus back in the church as a brother and to establish in the house church of Philemon a kingdom reality not seen in the Roman Empire. For Onesimus to stay in the household of Philemon is for him to be a constant and continued testimony to the way things have changed, the way things are different now, right? To be free and go and do something completely different, well, that would be beautiful too, but it's different, right? So how revolutionary would it be? So let's, let's just think about this. How revolutionary would it be for a master to welcome a runaway slave back into his home and not just as a forgiven person, but with the whole fabric of his household now turned upside down in Christ. For Onesimus to not just be a slave, but a brother with his house church as an outpost of the kingdom of God, revealing in real time at a real table over real meals that in Christ there is no slave and free. Could you imagine? Could you imagine unbelieving neighbors coming over to Philemon's house? Finding Onesimus sitting at the table with the family and other church members? Isn't that, isn't that the slave, like the runaway slave? To which Philemon would say, yeah, that's my brother. That's my brother. And what if that same neighbor comes over the following week and Onesimus is nowhere to be found? Where is that peculiar slave that I saw sitting at your family table last week? Oh, he's off in Ephesus with his old man, Paul. His old man? What? Did I miss something here? His old man, Paul? Yeah. And you let him go? He's my brother. He's my brother. This kind of arrangement... I feel like activates a kingdom imagination that, that challenges me and gives me something to think about that I wouldn't have considered otherwise. It's, it's pretty beautiful. Pretty revolutionary. Verse 17. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back. Not to mention that you owe me your very self. <laughs> Come on. Not to mention. You're mentioning it, you know, right? Like, okay. Uh, as we move closer to the end, Paul asks that Onesimus be welcomed as he would be welcomed. 
And I assume that if Paul were coming to, a, to Philemon's house, he would be welcomed with some appropriate fanfare, right? right if, if Paul was coming, even if he insists that he's just, you know, an old man and just a prisoner, I think you'd get out the good china or whatever the equivalent is in the first century, right? He would be welcomed, like really, really welcomed. And he is asking that the same be shown to Onesimus, the runaway slave. And Paul even offers to pay off his debts, any, any debts Onesimus has incurred. Maybe he stole stuff. I, who knows? Or maybe he just has to pay back, right, for all the, the time missed. Whatever. Paul says, charge it to me. And just as he signs many of his letters to authenticate them, Paul does, this one in particular he signs not just as authentication, but kind of as a promissory note, right? To cover the debts of the one that he calls son, the useful one Onesimus. Charge it to me. I'm writing this with my own hand. I'm signing off on it. His debt is now my debt. Verse 20. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I ask. Remember that thing I didn't mention earlier? That you owe me your very self? So Paul lays it out one more time here. He's confident that Philemon will catch his drift, that he will live into this beautiful picture that he's painted, where a runaway slave can be welcomed as a brother, like an old apostle would be, and that the church that meets in Philemon's home has a unique opportunity now to demonstrate the power of the gospel to break every chain. That is what they're being invited to, to demonstrate the power of the gospel to break every chain. Verse 22, and one thing more, prepare a guest room for me, I'm coming, because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So Paul reminds him that he still hopes to visit them soon. He sends greetings, almost the, exactly, almost the exact same list of greeters that we covered last week at the end of Colossians, so I'm not going to talk about all those people again. Um, and I'm sure you've been picking up on this all along, but the letter to Philemon calls us to consider how we might demonstrate the power of the gospel to break every chain here and now, right? What we see in this letter to Philemon, I think, invites us to consider what does it look like to break every chain, for the gospel to break every chain here and now. And at the heart of that call is precisely who we invite to our table, who we call sister and brother. I praise God that we do not literally have slave and slave master coming to the table today. I praise God that those are not relevant categories in our midst. But we do have bosses and employees, white-collar, blue-collar workers, unemployed, highly employed, underemployed, young, old, somewhere in between, men and women, people from all different cultural backgrounds, City folk, suburban folk, rural folk, Michigan, Purdue, and Notre Dame fans, and, you know, some other ones too. We all come to the table, and I, I just can't say this more clearly, 
No one, no one, no one is elevated higher than anybody else. Right? Nobody is elevated to a higher plane than another. Not even the old man and the apostle. Do we realize, do, do we realize in our heart of hearts what a concrete expression of the gospel that is? The fact that we can come, all of us, with all of our baggage, with all of our stories, with all of our differences and our similarities, we can come to the table together. Today especially, I hope we see the actual coming to the table as an extension of the sermon itself. One of my favorite liturgies of invitation to the table says, many will come from east and west and north and south to sit at the table in the kingdom of God. That's true, right? Many will come from east and west and north and south to sit at the table in the kingdom of God. This is Christ's table. It's already true when we gather here today. It's already true. And it will be true when we share the eternal feast with our bridegroom, Jesus Christ. One body. When we think about the history of the church, the hard-fought discussions, theological debates, trying to figure out how to do church, how to follow Jesus together, Jew and Gentile, slave and free. The fact that we landed in this place where, where if, you, if you love Jesus, you get to come to the table is a miracle. It's a miracle and it's an expression of the unimaginably good news of Jesus. Let's pray. Mighty God, you are so good. still have those words running through my head. Your goodness is running after me. Your goodness is running after all of us. Your goodness is calling us together, bringing us together. Your faithfulness is the reason that we get invited to this table. Yes, we receive the gift of salvation by faith, but our faith means nothing without your faithfulness. That's where it starts. You are the faithful one. And we come with what, what little faith we can muster and what little, what little faith we can offer by your grace to your table and into your family and into your beautiful, beautiful expression of the gospel and of the kingdom that gathers right here today and over and over again. Lord, be glorified in us. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to Riverside Church. For more resources, visit riverside.church.